This is the Betting on Zero podcast, inspired by the award-winning 2016 financial documentary Betting on Zero, with hosts Burke Koontz and John Fickthorn. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back at Betting on Zero, episode X. Is that where we are now, John? This is episode Y. This is episode Y, quite clearly, <laughs> I knew that. And uh, we get to welcome one of my older friends, not in terms of age, but in terms of duration of friendship, uh, Martin Hale of Hale Capital Management. Marty, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here, John. And, wait, that is you, right? That's not Charlie? Correct. He plays that trick on people. You know, he does have an identical and, it, and it's, it's been successfully played on bosses, probably lovers. I don't even know, but we don't, <laughs> right. need, to, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah, so, on that note, we can talk about your, your experience at camp together. What, what camp was it? Pine Island, uh-huh. Pine Island. Marty's very involved with Pine Island. Uh, it was, you know, Pine Island was one of those places that is one of those places. No running water, no electricity, tent, eight weeks, dudes bathing in a lake. Truly life-changing, awesome experience. Mm-hmm. And y'all were Marty, there when you're how old? Marty, you want to give a, Marty, give a plug to PIC. Well, I, I used to be quite involved as a trustee, but it's really a marvelous place for boys aged 8 to 14. And I think the gift that it gives them is self-reliance, the ability to explore uh, and challenge themselves in ways that, are, that are, have nothing to do with being plugged into anything electronic. And um, it is virtually unchanged since 1902. It is a, a, a magical and wonderful place. Yeah. You know, you know, part of this conversation, I think, is going to be how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, in the case of Pine Island, that is that is certainly true in, in the in the best of ways. In the markets, maybe maybe it's a little more frustrating at times. Like so. So after Marty and I go to camp uh, at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, we then get reunited years later uh, after he went to to Yale. I was at Maverick one day, uh, had just gone in there, was really running the short book for their tech portfolio. And I get a call from Marty who says, hey, I want to show you something. Great. Super nice to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he comes in and he shows me a case study that he'd been doing with, with brother Charlie, who is at HBS. And, you know, the I was a short seller at the time, like that was my core being. And that's not why they did this study. And yet the study was incredibly useful to me. Marty, why don't you give us a basic summary of, of what came out of that? And, and just to interrupt for a second, is this, are you saying that because y'all were deprived of technology all summer that y'all both became expert tech analysts? Is that how that works? Well, Marty, why don't you go into your background? Because <laughs> Marty, Marty was a real expert tech analyst. I just faked it. <laughs> well, I have a distant memory of John in uh, 1984 saying we should short Unisys, but, but putting that aside, uh, the, uh, the, after, after Yale, I was uh, lucky enough to wind up at a, a place called Broadview. I'd had an uh, internship at what was then a tech company, and Broadview found me. They were one of the first places to do tech-only investment banking. And uh, that led to the guys, they were affiliated with Geo Capital hiring me, moving over two seats to the venture affiliate. And then one of my mentors went to go start Peapot Ventures, Larry Lanahan, in 1997. And Larry brought me with him. Pequot at the time, it was called Dawson Sandberg, uh, became the largest tech hedge fund, the largest hedge fund in the world, period. And as a result, we kept, even though we were doing Series A venture investing, we kept getting these truly awful public companies coming to us. They made us want to uh, run away screaming. But one, Nitegrity, we noticed had a much better team, better products, and it was at a fraction of the valuation of its venture competitors. So we invested despite it being public. That company actually returned the whole first fund single-handedly, I think selling in O, you know, three uh, or so. So anyway, it, it got us thinking maybe there's something here. And uh, I had a twin brother, Charlie, taking Clay Christensen's class at HBS, looking for a project. And we thought, gee, let's, let's study how many publicly traded tech companies become orphans, lose a lot of value at any one time in their lives. And then let's understand how many go to zero versus how many recover. I've been reading NEF on value investing, but knowing the odds of everything you do. And Charlie had been focused on 
disruption and figured it could also be a really great uh, proxy for disruption. Mm-hmm. So Charlie cobbled together eventually that 30 students. For, for you, Clay, Christen, Clay Christensen's famous book, uh, and he died last year, and I, I love the book is one of these changing books, is about disruption. The Innovator's Dilemma. The Innovator's Dilemma about disruption and disc drive. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. If, if anyone's listening and hasn't read that book, it's one that you should should uh, make sure you throw in your book case uh-huh. and, and get in. Anyway, continue. As well as his, yeah, as well as more recent work. But the results were, were astounding. Uh, this, this work was actually very hard to do back when we, when we did it because uh, what, what Charlie really did it at the start, uh, because it's very hard to measure just something as simple as loss points. It was really computationally intensive. But um, to make a long story short, we were amazed to see that roughly back then, about 85% of publicly traded tech companies lost 80% or more of their value at any one time in their lives. And, Moreover, and, 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 and this is from 1980 to 2000, right? To nine, to actually, to, I think it was first run in 97 before the internet crash. So it made it even right. harder to believe. <laughs> then uh, what was what was more astonishing was that one in five to one in 10, depending on when you did the study, recovered 10x plus from an 80% loss point. So there were massive recoveries that I think it was quite um, counterintuitive in some ways. Most people assume that winner takes all and that most companies never come back. Well, that led us as a firm to invest in approximately 35 orphan public companies. Uh-huh. It wound up being one of our highest yielding strategies and a lot of what I did. And by 2001 or so, I thought we should have a dedicated fund, but you, you begin to become a prisoner of opportunity. We grew very rapidly. We had seven funds, different funds. And, um, it took a while to get around to the idea of just doing this in a dedicated way. And uh, eventually I proposed that we, we do this uh, team had offered to seed me in an independent fund doing it. We didn't need a seed deal because it's pretty niche, but I, I essentially started the HCP Hale Capital Partners in 2007, focused on this very idea. And we've been in business then as an evergreen fund um, since uh, 07. There, there are very so few that, people I've, I've, there are very few people I've quoted more than Marty Hale, much less actually have to credit in a presentation to investors. But, <laughs> but as a short seller, it was fascinating to me because I said, look, you know, when we launched Dialectic, we were seventy percent tech short, and uh-huh. I was running the book. Well, it was long short, but it was also uh, there was a short fund, and the basic thesis was, look, you know, seventy percent of these companies, assuming I don't short the next Microsoft or Google are going to fail, right? This is actually a 401k type investment idea, right? Even Even if if I did, did. right? And so, uh, yeah, I mean, even Amazon, right, went down 90%. So, so that first part was, was, was a crucial thesis. And I think something everybody needs to be reminded of tech companies are, are more often than not product cycles. So, uh, don't believe the hype. And we certainly certainly saw the first part of that failure in 2000 and 2001 and 2002 in, in spades. But that study, Marty, correct me if I'm wrong, has been rerun every year or certainly was for a while. And that curve's pretty consistent. Well, we, we I do, uh, I have, we have continued to refine it. Uh, this, this most recently with a professor at the University of Michigan and um, the last time we ran it was um, was last year before this recent um, before COVID and the pullback. And we at that time had uh, a record peak meter of companies trading within 10% of their all-time highs, the lowest loss rates since 1983, and uh, additionally um, everything other than the lowest deciles, decile one and decile two of microcaps. Uh, they were at the highest valuations on record. So, um, so, but but to answer your direct question, the loss rates were about around seventy percent. Seventy percent of tech companies had had lost seventy percent or more of their market value at any one time in their lives. So, I, I think the the investment takeaways one, uh, the late great Ray DeVoe had a formula: R is less than or equal to the square root of E, where R is reality and E is expectations. 
Let, let's let's repeat to remember that the benefit of our of our listeners because uh, I think um, you probably have the highest uh, education uh, of anybody who's been on here. Apologies to our, our previous guests. Uh, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> but uh, and actually, while well, can I get you to shrink your screen so I can see you better? Like you've got the um, you still got that uh, the note that we were talking about earlier. Just I know big people can't see this, but I can see it. So like if you can stop sharing that part oh we may be doing video by now i don't know we'll see if we can get this on the street yeah 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 yeah. but this is this this is better okay now go ahead now say what was the equation again i beg your pardon just prior for my benefit as well (laughs) r is equal or less than the square root of e where r is reality and e is expectation (laughs) generally Generally, we found reality rarely exceeds the square root of expectation and this this is coming from someone who's been a lifelong venture investor as well as loving these uh, public transition stories. The reality um, is no matter what, no matter how hot the company, how successful the company, it's very rare for any company to consistently make its plan. And, uh, and we have to remember in technology, especially where you're prone to disruption, where you're prone to tons of competition, lots of overfunding, it's just, it's very common for, uh, you're lucky if reality is indeed exceeding the square root of your, your expectations. And now, I haven't used that specific quote from you. I used it, you gave it to me in a different version, which is basically, you said at one point to me that most, the biggest challenge for any small cap company is forecasting. And I use that quote all the time inside of boardrooms because I try and convince that management that they're wrong. Whatever they're giving me, I just go, you're, it, this is wrong it's too high. Like figure out how to build a business to a lower number and they still miss it. Right now I haven't gone with, it needs to be the square root of the number that you've given me. But you know, I think regardless, I, I think it's one of, it's a very important life lesson that everybody should, should hold on oh. to. Well, that's the, uh, yes, that, that brings up a different uh, related issue, which is um, for actually when we're actively involved in most of our investments and we're always trying to, it, it's, it's very hard to hit your top line and it's frighteningly easily, easy to hit your expense line. So the challenge <laughs> is if your top line doesn't come through and you hit your expense, you're going to lose a lot more money. So, um, so our job in a way is- This is truly the betting on zero pockets. It reminds me of the film. <laughs> well, we, the reason why when we're budgeting, we typically have a, a downside plan, a base plan, an upside plan is because the, the thought exercise is always, okay, what if, what if things don't go well? Let's just make sure we still hit a plan where we can survive. In, in fact, our whole, ter- our whole model, essentially investment model in anything that's transforming or recovering is focused around viability. At the end of the day, the top line is, the top line growth is the hardest thing to create. You can have you can have products where the dogs are eating the dog food, new products that are growing, uh, and it's still very difficult. If you don't have a new product identified or a growth engine identified, it is really, even if you're successful, often a four or five-year journey. And so we always have to remember that viability is our friend, as, as crazy as that may sound, as quaint as that may sound in today's world. The secret to a lot of our work with our companies is let's make sure we can get cash flow positive quickly, bottom line viable. And from there, we have unlimited time to reinvent ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think one of, the, one of the key things we found with all our case studies, because the case studies were qualitative and quantitative and have continued, is it's very hard to grow your way out of when, you, when you're losing money. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's why um, most venture guys don't do very well with this kind of investing. They often um, try to grow their way out. And the reality is then you death spiral because you just can't, you can't remain solvent or viable. Well, the reality is that it's often a growth management team and board that takes a company into the disaster, right? They don't mean to, they're trying to grow. They're spending a ton of money. They miss their top line. They hit their expenses. Now they're losing money. Now the stock's in the death spiral. Well, for them, their hammers, everything's a nail. It's got to grow. And it's, it's a personality problem as much as it is anything. A turnaround value guy is a different guy. He's a guy that looks at the expense line and manages that. He's a guy that can fire people as opposed to hire people. It's a different skill set. And it's very hard to find, at least in my lifetime, a management team that can do both. Uh, and so oftentimes it requires a different, a different group of people altogether, right? Would you agree with that? 
Well, I, I'd agree that it's exceptionally difficult to find really great talent, no matter what you're trying to do. And, um, but, I, but I do think a great executive is a lot like um, a pilot. You, you can't be a good pilot good as everything. Oh, sorry, we lost the punch there. I lost the punch. I need the end of the quote. You can't be a good pilot. <laughs> you can't be a good pilot good at everything except landing the plane. So I actually do deep, deeply believe with our management teams that the reason it's so challenging is you have to be good at many different things. Our great CEOs, and it's a subject probably of a different podcast, have this, this ability to uh, excel, to increase velocity, and that is, that is routine. They hold people accountable. They are able to manage people very, very well, well, lifting them up and leading with the heart. So the, there's, this, there's this difficulty of, of the role where you are, are um, driving people, where you're lifting them up, where you're making them better. And, um, and uh, it's an example, that's another example of a sort of a contrary skill set. It's very easy for people to be a drill sergeant. It's very hard for them to be a drill sergeant that really cares about people and makes them better and lifts them up. Just like it's, it's, it's very difficult to grow great new products, but it's also difficult to be cash flow positive and focused while you're, while you're doing it. It's difficult right. to support a legacy base and to grow. Interesting. I, it, now you just got to tell me where to find these people because <laughs> right. they're hard to find. Uh, and so let's, let's, but, let's talk quickly about the, but, the turnaround. But, but John, I want to go back to one. Yeah. I want to go back to one thing you said about um, the, the team's, one of, the, one of the crazy things you've seen, and when you, when you um, for those in radio land um, or podcast land, you're not going to see these charts, but, but um, John, I, I sent to John and Burke uh, some files from my, from my archives from the internet collapse. And one of the things that jumps out when you go company after company is how, whether it's, uh, what, whether it could be, you know, it's like Broadcom, uh, the stock peaked in Q3 of 2000. Uh, you could look at uh, Amazon, which peaked in uh, Q4 of 99. Uh, the reality is, though, the fundamentals turned after that. So in, in almost every situation of turning point, if you ask a CEO how things are going, they'll say, great, never been better. Yet the fact is things have changed and their stock's already down a lot. So, so um, I think it's, it's the hierarchy of information in some way. The anomalous events tell you everything. Expert opinion tells you nothing. And so <laughs> CEOs are often the last to know that things have changed. Inside their own companies even, right? And sometimes the market yes, sees it's it astonishing. first. Right? But, it's, but it's true. If you just look at the, the material from, from, the, the, yeah. you know, from, from, from these old financials, you can see Amazon's um, – and 676 million in uh, in Q4 99, uh, their sequentials and year-over-year numbers continue to be blowouts for, in, through 2000. Yet the stock got crushed. Yeah, right. and and you know I think a lot of the people listening to this podcast probably weren't investing in 1999 and 2000. Uh, no, they have no idea. And cer certainly weren't tech-focused investors, right? For those of us who were tech-focused investors in those days, uh, I don't think there was anyone who had the great misfortune of being a dedicated short seller of technology stocks in 99 and 2000, which was something I can take a bow for. But it was, it was true craziness. And, you know, Marty, you mentioned before the call how this is crazy today. And, it's, and it certainly smells a lot like 99 and 2000, but, but it's not that extreme yet. It's not quite, I mean, not that it's not crazy. You just gave us the stats as to how, where we are in the cycle, but, you know, give, give us your thoughts as to where it is compared to Foundry IPOing at $330 or whatever it was back in the day. Uh, recognizing that no one can know and it's unknowable, I guess we're in the fourth or third inning of the craziness, maybe the fifth inning, but the fact of the matter is we've all lived through multiple bubbles where, people that we have tons of respect for like Jeremy Grantham start to say it's nuts. And then it, it continues to be nuts for another year and a half. Right. Yeah. It's not nuts until it, no one says it's nuts anymore. 
Exactly. We're, and you look we're at, getting there. If you look at 2000, <laughs> we could be getting there. Maybe, maybe we're in the seventh inning, but we get, you look at 2000 the, and you remember companies like I, as I, I had sent on these charts that would be fun to make available perhaps on the Twitter feed, Smart Serve Online, which had a market cap of 1.5 billion and no, no revenue and, and a terrible team. Uh, you had companies like, um, you know, you had these, just books cool. a million. Well, you you reminded in in our Metro. early thing. Books a million that what became booksamillion.com. I mean, there was an entire period of like six months where all companies had to do was literally put right. .com after their name, and the stock would go up by multiples. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, exactly. MIS International changed its name to Cosmos.com, and that name change on that day generated two hundred million dollars in market cap. <laughs> Uh, then there was there was access of of Altamont Springs, Florida, which changed its name to financialweb.com and went up 111 times. Uh, there was Charter Investor Relations of North America, which became millionaire.com. It went up 540 times. <laughs> you know, and then to zero. Talks that, yeah. They, oh, they all went to zero. Boy, yeah, you, boy, no, no, you left out that your best remember. data point on that one is that it went to zero like a. It, in a in a day, like the same day, it went BK. Which one? Which one was that? Oh, no, that, was, oh, that, that was Golden, Golden Books Book. Family Entertainment, which announced that they were selling books online. The stock uh, was the biggest loser, and, well, biggest gainer, and then the biggest loser all in the same day. Because after the stock rocketed by hundreds of millions of dollars, it went bankrupt. <laughs> I, I had one of those when I was at Alliance as a short seller, and I went in and I'd heard like this thing was out there looking, you know, for rescue bids. It was, I think, I think it was Leaf was the ticker, and the the company, one of the analysts at B of A, came out with a breakup value target that made the stock worth thirty two, and the stock was trading at fifteen, and it was one of my first shorts as a short seller at Alliance, and the stock went up a hundred percent that day. And still went bankrupt like three weeks later, and was and was sold for the pieces. So it didn't have the one day, but it was it was the same story. That is how crazy it was, right? I, well, you know, yeah. So we're not there. Yet. We know we're not there yet. And by the way, that that was probably similar. Just to go to the deep cuts for those who uh, are haven't lived lived that long. Even for 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 us, we're relatively young compared to our parents' uh, era, where they lived through the great garbage market of 68, 69, the Tronics boom. And, uh, you know, that, at that time, I, I think it's just worth noting, you had companies like, like uh, and these were very well-followed uh, story stocks, but, you know, Acme Missiles and Construction, that was a 99% decliner, Alpha Numeric, Astrodata, you know, Cognitronics, Dolly Madison, Elcor. In other words, that was another period where you had these just incredible, incredible speculation that all ended in tears. And it happens. Right. And, and it was just a different. And by the way, you, you haven't heard of any of those tech companies because tech moves in cycles and there will be something else after this kind of cloud. Right. The Internet turned into the cloud and, you know, we'll we'll see what's next. But there will be a next and it won't be these. Right. Just where you heard I, it I here first. <laughs> Yeah, I had to laugh though when the SPAC bought uh, that company that Latch that makes um, door locks. Maybe it's a great company. I really don't know, but but one of the great one of the great boom stories in the Tronics boom was Liquid Onyx, which made magnetic door locks, <laughs> and the stock went from zero to one hundred and fifty five and back to zero. <laughs> I mean, this is, right. this, is a, this is a great conversation to have because a, a lot of folks, like what the most recent podcast we did was on you know, GameStop and how it's a story and it's a battle and it's a narrative. And, you know, it's at the end of the day, these are companies, these are real companies that are theoretically supposed to be trying to earn returns on capital. And and that's that's what we're talking about at the end of the day. And and you know, that tends to get lost in the shuffle that gets lost when you're watching CNBC. Uh, you know, people over there work very hard, but it's, it's hard to talk about uh, these, uh, it's hard to talk about stocks in terms of companies on a day-to-day basis, and some people don't. And and you know what what you've done over your career is you know it's, it's admirable. And and this, you know, the fact that that all of these can go to zero after you know being up 400 percent, um, just it, it underscores something that's going on in, in the market today, which is you know it, you know clearly last year the economy became disconnected from. Uh, the stock market, the, the financial markets, um, because of what was going on in the pandemic, and you know, it, it's just an important reminder that that you know they're they're not the same. And, and maybe maybe today's analogy of of top, and I might have said it was weed or AI a year ago. Now it's like 
oh, I bought Bitcoin onto my balance sheet. Oh, look, my stock went up. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah. No, a year ago, it was, definitely, or, it was definitely weed, and now it's probably coin. It, Just add, I bought Bitcoin, or, or a SPAC is buying a company, and the thing goes up, like without any regard for the fact that they probably just overpaid for the asset, and there's another one out there that already does the same thing. So I don't know. SPACs and Bitcoins smell a lot like dot-coms to me, but... But who knows? All we know is that reality, well, what will, like to you? <laughs> reality will equal the square root of expectations. So there we go. Uh, so, so it's all going to blow up, right? It, it will happen. 70% of them will go down. And then the question is, how do you sift through the ashes? And, and you know, I used this law this morning while I was being pitched an investment from a management team. So I, I truly do use this. If you ever think about investing in small cap turnaround, just always say this to yourself. So Marty, please tell us, what are the common, what are the commonalities between turnaround stocks? Well, uh, there are many ways to fail and few ways to succeed. As uh, for those of you who suffered through liberal arts, Anna Karenina, the line that every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, in a different way. Every happy family is happy in the same way, essentially. Uh, so there are lots of ways to fail. The question is, how do you succeed once things have not gone well? And uh, there are qualitative and quantitative success factors. We have, over many years, studied these and, and been part of many of these. And I, I think um, to, to reduce it, the thing um, I generally find is just like a, a losing sports team, you have to fire the coach. And I hate to say it, but um, even very good coaches, even very good CEOs, when you presided over a gigantic drubbing, it's as much a psychological shift as anything else. And so um, the general, one of the first rules is the guys who bring you down never bring you back. Mm-hmm. And it's, wow. a, it's a difficult rule, but it's true. But it's just it's, true. It's mostly true. By the way, I'll, I, would, I will add that these are just odds. So our whole framework was just know the odds, measure the odds. And uh, so the, the, the odds are much better with a new team, but it's not always the case. And sometimes the most epic returners actually have the same person. It's just very rare. So look at Amazon. Amazon lost 90% of its value yeah. peak to trough. But um, the same CEO brought it back. Um, and, and again, the roots of failure are many. That may not have been an actual failure. Other, that could be an example of market perception getting way ahead of reality. Yeah. Well, and they did have AWS, which right. kind of helped really accelerate their future but yeah, yeah you, you great this is a great it's... example he was he was epic turnaround same guy but generally speaking you need a new team and you one. need and one and no that's point number one the guys bring you down never almost never bring you back point two which is um much more challenging is you have to get stable and which means getting cash flow positive. 80% of your expenses are generally people. And uh, we have never, ever cut too deeply. The law from uh, a company that I work with uh, by one of their executives is, and, and this is not politically correct in any way, shape, or form, but it's you should always fire one too many people. You should fire one, one person so much that you're like, oh, whoops, I shouldn't have fired that guy. We need to hire him back. And that's well, the, the until reality, then you don't know. The, the brutal reality is because we, we want to create the greatest experience for the most amount of people possible. But you just, you, sometimes you have to amputate an arm to save a body. And, uh, and the reality is, well, it's very painful to get stable. You have to reduce expenses fast because your viability is an issue. And if you don't, you're going to lose everything. So would you rather say goodbye to some people you really care about, that you really love, that are part of your organization and have everyone perish or have everyone else succeed? And so the, the, the brutal and unfortunate reality is you have to act very quickly to get stable. Mm-hmm. And once you're stable, you have an unlimited time to reinvent yourself. 
And there you move to, once you're stable to all the basics of really great product management. If I had to pick one root of all disasters, it's terrible product management. And if I had to pick one way, it's a little simplistic of getting back to prosperity is excellent product management. And most people, really great product managers are really hard to find. Um, but you've always you have, said you've right? always told me it's an it's a new product cycle. The same product that brought you in is not the product that's going to bring you out. Have have I been misusing your rule? Can you can you reignite no, no, the same thing? Uh, well, it's I think the the reality is typically a product has been disrupted, so we have to take the legacy product and run it much harder for cash. But we take the growth product and run it much more effectively for growth. Fine. And running that new product much harder for growth um, is difficult. Essentially, the, I think the, the key is that tech turns are really heavily, in some ways, essentially not turnarounds, but heavily encumbered startups, which is why we think of ourselves as non-traditional Series A investors. We, we just, we're, we're Series A investors that happen to like companies with more than $20 million of revenue, where we can get bottom line viable and then introduce a really great product. Um, and that sounds weird, but it, it actually is the way these things work as a practical matter. So for that new product, you really have to have really great technical product management, which is hard to do and hard to find. You have to, you have to take this product and everyone always focuses on the gizmo I found. This is a great gizmo, but what's far more important is how you bring that gizmo to market. So you go to market, how you get your initial traction, how you build up an ecosystem around it, how you have an effective sales force, how you do effective lead gen, your MQL to SQL conversion, all this stuff that is actually a lot more difficult than the gizmo. Right. It's all the guy. The gizmo is the ante, I generally think. It's not the game, right? You can pitch, pitch a nifty gizmo with bad management and it's still not going to work at the end of the day. Uh, and which, which is why, yeah, which is why great new CEOs then typically replace or bring in a lot of great new people. Because often when a company is death spiraled, has lost a lot of value, the A's and the B's have already left. So you're left with the C's and D's. This is only at the VP level. Right. There you're, are that's right. there's generally incredible first. director level talent and below. Very, very good. But we've often found the VPs, you know, that, that VP level is is, is uh, it's harder to find the gems. Not impossible, but harder. Generally, the good VPs don't put up with the bullshit at headquarters. So mm -hmm. if we're going to find a good one, they're generally at a remote location. Hmm. Interesting. So they're inside, they're just not in home office, possibly. You know, Sometimes. You know, it's, in, a, in any case, it's just the, the brutal, it's just like a losing team, right? You, you have to uh, get a new coach and then find a Tom Brady. I generally feel like it's not just the coach, but it's, it's generally not even just the coach too. I generally find for everyone, if, if it's a bad, if it's a poorly run company with a bad coach, and we've both seen those coaches, right? Those coaches who are in it purely for self-interest. They don't care about shareholders. They tend to have surrounded themselves with a cadre of people. I tend to find the rule of thumb is about five. And you need to figure out who those are and get those out of the way as well, or you're still going to have a toxic culture if you really want to have a smoother turnaround. Right, because, because those people aren't coaches. A real coach cares about people other than himself or herself. And a real coach would not, would not live like that, right? Like these are uh -huh. not good coaches if that's what they're doing. Right. And I also think, and it, this may not be true, but I also think it's enabled by a board. Every activist deal I've ever done looks the same, right? And you go into the board, there are a lot of old guys there who really aren't paying attention at all, ask no difficult questions, and they're there for their really nice for, you know, mm -hmm. chicken or steak dinners a year and bottle of wine, and they kind of feel important. Uh, they're not really doing the work for shareholders of advising, enabling, pressuring, questioning, networking, and anything else. And so clearing out that boardroom kind of, I, I think, frees up management to do their job, your new management anyway, as well. It's, it's a horrible truth, I think, that um, is ill-comprehended, and that is that the only people who care are the people who have their own money in a company, really, at yep. the end of the day. And most board members have very little stock. The stock they have, they haven't bought. They've been given it as uh -huh. options.
Right. And I like to point out to board members, when, when, when I join, when I join a board, I say to every board member, reach into your pocket and go buy stock. Because there's a tremendous psychological difference between losing your own money and getting a few less presents for Christmas, which is what options are, right? Amen. And so there's Amen. just, it's just, I don't even care if it's a teeny amount of money, reach into your pocket and buy stock or get off the board. They're paying you board fees. You need to think like a shareholder. You need to act like a shareholder. You need to be a shareholder, not a share givener. And I just think it's a, I just think it's, it's mandatory in my opinion. So if Both, you, if, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, yes. There's, oh, no, no, no. We, the other, the other challenge is sometimes the more successful someone has, they care. And so we also have um, boards where, where people just made so much money. They don't really care that much. Right. And on some of those big ones, I'm sure there's a it lot. It has of to that. matter. It yeah. has to matter. If you're, if you're just a regular public equity market investor, I mean, like what, what hope do you have to be able to um, identify situations like these, or do you just have to uh, stick with the index and let sort of the, the magic of indexing work where you, you know, the most of the returns of the index are going to come from a few good companies and the rest of them are going to, you know, go the way the dodo and kind of, you know, do what we're talking about here in mass. But what, I mean, what do you, I mean, you guys have the resources to, to put your expertise to work? Is there a way that, you know, the little guy can, can approach this? Well, so it's a good question, Burke. And I, I think the existential point is to, to remember for any little guy, there are very few good investments. Mm-hmm. Just let that one sink in. <laughs> there are very few good investments. Right. Most are bad. Which is his so, point of that's so the magic that, of indexing, right? But, but if you want to have like, I, 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 I want Marty to answer the question, not me, but I will tell you it's, it should save everybody. There's an avoidance lesson here. Mm-hmm. Also to Marty's point, like when somebody pitches you a turnaround or a stock that's been beaten down and you see it's come down and you look at it and you pull it up and they're like, oh, this is going to be great. Ask yourself, like, okay, is this the guy that led me into the disaster? Is this the product that led me into the disaster? Is the business profitable? Does it have enough cash to get to where it needs to get to and like if it doesn't right yeah think twice no it's, it's true i, I think I, I what i do i'm trying to exactly and let, let's we can talk about that I, I i just say for starters whether you're doing something that's lost a lot of value or at its all-time high <laughs> rule number one is be right because um, there, there are two principles one you want something that's growing and healthy uh, but two, valuation really matters. Mm-hmm. And those two things are often at odds, which makes your life as an investor not easy. And the sooner you recognize that you've got a really hard job and that it is difficult, the better off you be. So start with the recognition that nothing is easy. And generally, we found that our smart ones, in terms of our team, start with guilty and work their way to innocent. So I think the first thing I would do is assume everything doesn't make sense. Nothing is a good idea. And then convince yourself otherwise through work. Just as a conceptual overview, just generally, right? Because you could go barrel into Tesla today. And, you know, I love my Model 3. It's a great car. Um, But that doesn't mean it's worth this valuation and, and that there's any basis for that valuation, really. You, you could still have a great company and it could still be valued at 20% of its current levels. That's in Tesla's case, 10, right? I mean, if you were just take, yeah, take their market share percentage down to their, uh, their market cap percentage of the industry down to their market share percentage of the industry, right? And just assume they have industry average margins, right? Down 90. So, right. So what happened? What Amazon, did Amazon ever people? stop being a great, great company? It went down 90%, right? So, it is possible. Right. And I've been, I was dead wrong on Amazon for, for decades and I've been dead wrong on Tesla for, <laughs> for, for forever. <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay. So let's say, and I, by the way, I'll, let's say you, you, everyone on the phone, everyone that listens to this recognizes that it's difficult. Let's say they all adopt the mindset of guilty until proven innocent. Then what do you do? And by the way, this, this is a question that haunts me every waking minute practically right like this is what we professional investors struggle with every day we're fiduciary for uh, fiduciaries for other people's money 
if we're not successful, our endowments aren't successful, our families lose money. And it, it really is, uh, to me, uh, a huge amount of pressure. So this question consumes us every day. What do you do? My personal view for, for what it's worth is valuation really matters as a starting point. That you're always much better off paying a lower valuation than a higher valuation. That, that is not a popular view right now. But I, I think it's, it's not just true in public markets, and I'm going to just interrupt you for one second. It's another Hale Law that I live with, which is the most important determining factor of a successful investment is the price you pay for it initially. And it just, it's a great thing to say to yourself, whether you're doing a private M&A deal or buying a public stock, right? Uh, sorry. Yeah, and by the way, no, you're exactly right, John. I, now, I do think we're, we're all agile enough mentally to say if something's growing 100% a year, we could pay one times next year's revenue and it would be very cheap, potentially, if it had decent gross margins. In other words, one of the funny things we find for a lot of our younger team, and you see in the Reddit crew, which um, is that, you know, sometimes people think if a stock is, has a low price, it's inexpensive. Or they think um, if you're paying uh, a multiple of revenue, it's automatically expensive. But the reality is it all depends on what that company is capable of. But, but, it, but your point is right. Re it's required a lot for me over the years to leave my basic value investing overly simplistic principles and start think about starting to think about total opportunity available, mm -hmm. right? Not, and you don't pay for the total opportunity, right? But, but it's important to have that mental flexibility. Don't just be stringent. Oh, it's gotta be less than X times cash flow, right? Or, or you won't ever invest at the end of the day. Uh, right, right. So, so recognizing that what we're trying to do is to pay a low multiple for reasonably, reasonably predictable, a reasonably predictable short-term future and then less, hard, less easy to predict longer-term future. So anyway, start, start with valuation. Then, then generally, I personally, I go to the skill of, of the team because at the end of the day, uh, I found that exceptional leaders make it happen and figure out a lot of the problems. And I think uh, a, a poor team will snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. It's true. It's true. I, I've lived it with one of the companies I work with that started as a legacy tech company, lived through a tyrant of a CFO that became CEO and ultimately basically embezzled funds. And a new team came in and took this 40-year-old technology company and reinvented it. And it wasn't it wasn't any, there wasn't anything magic. It was a great leader and a great CFO combination that literally re reinvented the product, reinvented the value chain, the supply chain, the distribution channel, and the entire idea behind it, and has turned it into one of, one of the best performing stocks I'm, I'm involved in. And you, I, that really, I for I me, that really, for me, though, was the first, like, I've never seen a team transform an asset like that. And it made me a huge believer in you're betting on the people, just period, full stop. You know, yeah, exactly. So, so I, I forgot to, by the way, I forgot to add in, let's say, okay, low valuation. You also, the second thing is probably after valuation before team is you just, you just want to make sure you can get stable, right? Because at the end of the day, a 10% gross margin business that's losing tons of money, no matter how good your team is, they're going to be challenged, right? You want, you want a business that is worthy of a, it doesn't have to be, but in general, I'm a gross margin snob for, for those who aren't as um, a, a, a fluent in this thing. Among that's other me. snobs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It well, just means that you've got, you know, your cost of goods sold is, is low. So, so um, essentially Software. there's room to, to uh, make it but, viable because if, but, if you're... Right. But you've done so much with like antenna companies that have 32% gross margins. Where does your snobbery begin? Does it need to be just above, is it double digits? What do you, what do you require? You've done so much in that space oh, that I would consider well, to be somewhat I, low I've margin. Done a, <laughs> I have done tons of wireless over the years, but, that, but they've actually been about 50% gross margin businesses. Okay. I, generally, my cutoff is 35%, 40%, right. although more is better. Um, right. 
But um, Don Herbalife's got like an eighty percent gross margin. We can, maybe that's a good one. <laughs> MLMs are very profitable. So, <laughs> so then, you, then you get to the team, and uh, one of the obsessions, or my greatest obsession, in Charlie's as well. Charlie's done a really good job of benchmarking behaviors of really great people in various roles: CEO, CFO, product management, and we spend a huge amount of time and effort trying to understand the behaviors of successful people. Uh, I had a great coach and mentor, Randall Stutman, and uh, he has a series of um, podcasts that are for a thousand dollars are probably the best thousand dollars anyone can spend who is leading people. And it's called admiredleadership.com. And uh, it, it, it delves into the behaviors of admired leaders. And I'm a, I am a firm believer that there are sets of behaviors for every role that people can learn from. And um, when I think about our job as investors, yes, we have our LPs as our customers, but the core job we have to do is actually to help our portfolio companies succeed. And at the end of the day, the portfolio companies hire us and fire us uh, or hire us by taking our money and so I have to help people succeed. And the best way I do that is I have 22 years of templates from really great executives across every functional area. We have a complete playbook and um, that we're always adding to. And we're trying to deconstruct the behaviors of really, really great people in different roles and then help our teams learn from them. And so, so for me, when you ask, if you ask, how do I identify a talented CFO? How do I identify a talented CEO? I look for behaviors of others that have been successful. So give, give me an example of a CFO behavior like that you're sitting here able to track and measure. I mean, is this part of an interview process? Does your CFO have to take the hail personality quiz to get a CFO <laughs> job? Like, how, how do you measure this stuff? This is new. Well, there, there is, uh, we, we do do TTIs. The answer is yes, but we do, but there, there are multiple different ways. But TTIs, for example, uh, you would not be, it's a personality test. You would not, and I, again, I'm not a huge believer in personalities. I think behaviors are way more important than personalities. Anyone can adopt a behavior, even if, person, if it doesn't come naturally to the personality. But, but, but if you want to know for personalities, I generally would not want my CFO on the desk, which is um, uh, a four quadrant to be a very high influencer, inspira inspirational type, right? Generally, your CFOs are, are high C's for compliance and high S's for steadiness. That's what the job entitles. It's why, um, tongue in cheek, uh, most good CFOs have no sense of humor. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're literal. Uh, they're the voice of calm reason. Uh, they they are uh, they're very good with numbers, and uh, you know you're not gonna you're not gonna look for the qualities in a CFO that you would look for in your head of sales. In fact, they may be right. the exact opposite. You right. you talking the the disc chart the disc. Uh... Uh, circle, yeah. diagram, high right, S, right. high C. Right. Um, we we do, and, and Charlie deserves a ton of credit for this. I've drafted off a lot of this work, but the um, the reality is um, we do have a range of things we like to see in in CFOs, um, and uh, a range of behaviors. Um, generally. Um, and, and again, it's, it's sort of like the pilot analogy. There are many different things you have to do well to be a good, really good CFO. Um, my, 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 my biggest warning sign for any CFO would be someone who's high level. Right, 30,000 foot Oh, the worst. Um, I want someone who will model out a complete um, company model, P&L balance sheet cash flow themselves, who, you know, when you ask them, um, what steps do you take to prepare for an audit? The right CFO answer is none because I've already, I'm already prepared. <laughs> okay, good. I, mean, I the, like the, it. These, these are examples. fantastic little, I mean, these are great nuggets and, but it, it, it makes me nervous as a, as a fiduciary of other people's capital that, that, you know, people, not everyone, not everyone's able to perform the kind of due diligence that you do. And, and, you know, for your mom and pop, investor out there i mean you know are they are they truly at, at such a gigantic disadvantage informationally that uh you know you know they're that they belong in index funds or 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 not i mean it just sounds like uh 
you know, th- th- it's the answer may be yes. It, oh, Burke, I don't know. I, I feel like sometimes when you do all your homework well and you're a contrarian, you're at a great disadvantage. Uh huh. As mm-hmm. Jeremy Grantham will say, I mean, you look, know, it's a pretty we, miserable life being a contrarian. It, you, you know, we're gonna we're gonna sit out on a lot of parties. Right. But right. But look, it's investing is fun if it's done correctly. Putting your money in an index fund isn't fun. Right. It's just not fun. Right. You're like, yeah, oh, it went up. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Right. It's kind of a number on a web page. Mm-hmm. But getting to know a company, a small down and out stock that's really cheap, and you're trying to figure out why. And over time, you get to know the company, you go, yeah, this is cheap. I get it. Oh, it's got decent margins. Oh, they have a new product. This is pretty cool. These new guys have come in to turn it around. They did something cool in the past. You know, you can put the once you get to know it, you can have a concentrated bet in something that you feel really safe investing in. And you might get lucky and it goes up two, three, four, five X Mm -hmm. because you got it right. But at the very least, if you kind of follow some basic principles, it was really cheap when it started. It was viable. Right. And they had a good team. The odds are you're actually going to make it work. And people Mm -hmm. have asked me, you know, over the last six months, what do you do with your cash? And I'm like, I'm putting it in this stock right now because it's trading at two times free cash flow. And I don't think it's going down. And I, I can't think of anything better to do with my money. Right. Right. And so it's worth learning these lessons and learning how to play the game because guess what? It, your retirement's dependent on it. And, you know, this market could go down 50%. And I don't think either Marty or I or you would be particularly surprised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet I would be surprised if some of my stocks went down 50% and stayed there. Right. Uh, I'd probably take, yeah, I think that's an excellent point, John, and very well said. I'd take the Greek man's view of a wise man has many pockets. So, you know, for your average investor, keep some cash. Cash is good. Um, keeps you flexible. Try to avoid debt, generally, because debt ends badly for, for most people. Um, and then This is a guy who lends money to different. companies. We <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't do much lending, but, uh, but, but then... Um, but then, then there's a difference between speculating and investing. And speculating is a great amount of fun, but you just have to realize you're speculating. Right. As long as you and know that's for what investing, you're doing. For those younger, like, yeah, start, start, right? And make sure whatever you invest, you can lose. And then you get smarter and smarter and you learn the lessons over a lifetime. And the thing I, I love about investing um, is you can never outsmart the market. And my learning curve is as steep today as it was when I started. And there are very few jobs like that where you are continually learning. So never, it's almost a, it's, I think it's a, it's a myth to think that you can ever master the market, which keeps it fun and keeps it interesting. But remember, you don't have to be a perfectionist, right? Like we're all learning, even, even, you know, I've been doing this 23 years, 22 years, still learning every day. I sometimes feel like I know less now than I did when I started out. Um, and, 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 but you well, know, that's it's, the thing, right? right. Our, our successful people, our successful people investing around our investment committee start with the, the reality is the more you know, the worse something looks. Right, right, right. It, it's yeah. almost always that way. The more you know, the worse something looks. So when my younger team members say, Hey, I really like this, I'll be like, Okay, when you really get to know it, tell me, you know, tell me if you still feel like the it. Same way. <laughs> right. Is it? And usually they don't. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes. Familiarity sometimes breeds do. contempt in the investment world. Sometimes you do. And then you know to pile in, right? And that doesn't happen very exactly. often, right? But, but sometimes everything lines up. And it never lines up when you first look at something. It lines up like two years later. I've got one right now well, that I've been looking at for six years. And I'm finally like, it's time. Oh, my God. It's time, right? Which one? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And the ticker is? I'd say you could invest in my fund, that. but there isn't even one of those. That's why I'm <laughs> right. doing the stupid podcast. The reality is also, John, when you find one of those, and I would love to, we would all love to hear what it is. When you find one of those often, um, you still are often wrong for a while. Avid was one where when the stock was at 450, right. I, I, at the Jim Grant conference, I mentioned that I thought it was one that looked awful in many ways, but it, but because it looked so awful, it, it was probably a pretty good opportunity. And I uh, went through that. And then um, for the next two years, it sort of 
went up a little bit. It went down a bunch. It just it looked like it was a mistake. I'm sure everyone who heard it at the Grant Conference thought, that hell, that was a dumb idea. And now, now it's successful. Oh my Two God! Later, oh my no, God! It's a twenty-four. Oh my God! You know, not, that's, the point is, a, you you know, you mentioned to have me look at it back when we were, you know, back in COVID, and I did so much work on it from so many different angles. And the worst thing is, I got in touch with somebody who was short it, and they just. They kept, I mean, this was like, I went back and forth. I talked to the old CFO, like so much work. And this fell into the, the hail, like, yeah, the more I got to know it, I was like, oh no, I'm just going to wait. And now boom, mm -hmm. seven to 24 in three months. Congratulations. <laughs> That's really impressive. Uh, blind squirrel can find a net. Yeah, man. But, but yeah, but it's an example of how, even when you think you have one it's really hard to stay confident in it because you know i uh, it seemed to make a lot of sense but it was never one where where you know there are always there are always flaws in everything when you really do yeah yeah and yeah and it, you, at the end of the day real money is made by predicting the future not uh -huh. looking backwards and predicting the future is impossible Right. You're like, you know, very close out. I know that this podcast is going to end. That's about as far as I can get into predicting the future. Right. And so, but it's important to recognize that that is what you're trying to do. And that is how you get paid. Right. You right. have to take some level of risk and risk is, is called risk for a reason. Right. Well, it's probability, right? But, yep. but that's why valuation matters because I, yep. I try not to, I have no idea what the future will hold, but I do know if I have a low entry price, a good team, and the company will remain viable and not dilute me, then we, we have a lot of optionality mm -hmm. to create value. You, you have a much longer runway, right? Your, your option is longer dated at the end mm -hmm. of the day. And that, that effectively You're gives You're not it worried about like. theta bleed. But, but the not dilute me is important because for some reason in Silicon Valley, no one can spell ROIC. And if they can spell it, they don't know what it means. <laughs> right. That's because it hasn't worked for them. Well, well, has it worked for them? How are returns for venture capitalists? Come on, you're a venture capitalist. What, what do those look like? Not your yeah, returns, I mean, generally. <laughs> the median venture return, according to Cambridge, TVPI, total value to pay in is zero. Median over 15 years, which is very bad. But zero. Zero. Say that again. You broke a little there. Was the number just zero or was there another digit? <laughs> no, no, it was zero. <laughs> so, but so, the top quartile funds have done well, and magically everyone considers themselves a top quartile fund. Um, so, but, but uh, the Kaufman Institute. Uh, like like this is a top quartile uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Kaufman Foundation rather uh, put out a big report saying we've seen the enemy and the enemy is us. It was about how all their allocations to venture of, of uh, it's really a great report um, about how uh, of the top of their 100, 100 funds they invested, it's really like only six made a lot of money and uh, maybe 70% lost money. It was pretty astounding. Wow. I've got to put in my new venture deck that we're going to be in the top six percentile. <laughs> Clearly, I left that slide out. <laughs> wow, but it's hard. If this goes to, you know, we think we think they're all, you know, minting money, and here you're telling me that even these experts in the, you know, epicenter of venture investing. By the way, maybe there's a little too much competition for targets, but I don't know. I don't know what it could be. Even there, even investing is hard for them, right? So. Yeah, it is. It's hard. You know, and, and uh, the valuations have gone up a lot. According to PitchBook, the median, sorry, the, the mean late stage uh, venture valuation is 570 million, 580 million. <laughs> now, the, that's, uh, that's preposterous. <laughs> well, especially when the median, although I'm mixing median and mean, the median uh, exit is 90 million. Yeah, that's. Huh. <laughs> There's a mean, there's a mean median distortion there, but still it's not, it yeah. shouldn't be that distorted. <laughs> I mean, no, um, but no, but the, but the point, by the way, was not about MOIC, but rather ROIC for the companies themselves. And what we found uh, over many years is that um, this is the sort of a very subtle point that very few even professional investors really get. Uh, 
everyone looks at earnings growth, but ROIC is way more important, return on invested capital. And the reality is your average small cap has a cost of capital probably all in a 15 or 16% according to Bloomberg. And, I think that's uh, right. The, the theory is one divided by your cost of capital is your effective yield as a business. This is a very hard one for most people to understand. So if you have a 16% um, cost of capital, you should have a six and a quarter PE, assuming no growth. And so, and also it creates such a huge challenge because you have to, you have to actually have a return greater than your cost of capital. So for your average small cap, how many are generating returns in the, in the 20s or 30s? Relatively few, very few. And the challenge is when you have a cost of capital greater than your return on invested capital, the faster you grow EPS, the more money you lose and the more value you destroy. Mm -hmm. And very few CEOs understand that. I was on the board of a wonderful board of people I really like. They did not understand that in the comp plan, they would not put ROIC in a comp plan. Well, and really uh, they're a serial acquirer. It's always EPS. Right? Or, 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 yeah, and they're oh, and by the way, it's total bullshit EPS because it's all adjusted EPS, which right. is what every right. single public company does these days, right. which is totally meaningless. It's just not totally meaningless, complete, just oftentimes meaningless, and sometimes completely meaningless. <laughs> right. I would like everyone listening to this podcast to write a letter to the uh, to, to Finra, encouraging them to clamp down on this non-gap uh, on these non-gap pro forma, non-gap pro forma adjusted. The NGPA EBITDA, yes, earnings before expenses, not revenue. <laughs> and then the adjusted revenue, that's the one that gets me the most whenever I see the pro forma revenue. That's, that's my, that's my yeah. favorite. But, but the, yeah, exactly. the numbers are the real, the but, really The really substantive point, though, is that even, even if you took gap earnings and, and were conservative about it, it's still very hard for companies to grow, to, to have a return greater than the cost of capital in small cap land. And that's why, that's why when you look at a company like Microsoft, a 50, I think it's got like a ROIC of 50, 50, you know, 50%, which is unbelievable. Of course, it should have an 85 PE if it's got that kind of return on invested capital. But, you know, it's another one of those laws, like every board member should have to buy stock in the public market that I feel like isn't at all inside management and boardrooms. And I just think it's insane, right? They don't How understand it, it. They just don't get it. And it's like, it's a very basic law. And if they just live by that law, then you just raise your chance of success much more, but it's hard. It's hard. Martin, are they being guided by this uh, idea that perhaps if their growth is higher than their cost of capital, that they're, you know, effectively their cost of capital is, is negative and somehow that distorts or, or destroys the ability of people to do that computation at all? I, I think it's a good question. I, I, and I, I tried to argue this one on this particular board that will remain nameless. I did meet with him though, and I can't verify everything he's saying is true. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and they're talented people who I gen, genuinely like. Um, so, but, but I couldn't, I wasn't successful. And I, and I think it's because ROIC is a complicated measure for them. Um, it's, it's hard to understand. And um, when you do acquisitions, it becomes even harder to adjust it. And um, so I think it's difficult for boards to understand. And, and, and if you're an acquirer, it, it introduces such an objective um, measurement that a lot of People whose comp plan depends on it don't like it either. So you've got a lot of forces aligned against it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think, John? Yeah, no, I, I, I think all of that's true. I also think that, you know, it, to your last point, people do what you pay them to do. And right. if, you don't, if you don't stick it in somebody's incentive comp plan, they're not going to do it. Period. Full stop. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of boards distill that down to, did the stock price go up? Right. Maybe. Or, you know, did they grow earnings per share? Because it's just easier to calculate at the end of the day. And because right. most what business are they really in at the end of the day, they're in the get the stock price up business. Yeah. And, you know, so that, that's actually a lousy way to have a comp plan best. And, and, and I know from personal experience, we had a dad wonder our, our, who's now Rob Kano, wonderful CEO has been with us three, three journeys. Now Rob's one of the best I've ever backed. Um, we, uh, you know, we invested in the stock. It was at three bucks. Um, 
And uh, we had a micro cap run up and a couple of things went right. We got a lot of traction in our, you know, with our, with our robots, with Tesla and a couple of others. And uh, stock went to 21. Everyone vested. And then uh, we had to hire more people to catch up with our, with our to, to integrate these complex projects. We had to uh, reduce earnings to, to keep up with the growth. And the stock went down to seven and, you know, people vested. And I thought they'd be happy. I thought the team would be happy because they were such a good team. They're like, we hate this because it actually had no bearing to our accomplishments. Mm -hmm. So the thing is people, when they vest, they want to vest because they've done something, not because the market over rewarded them on one. Right. Well, again, I'm not even sure I believe right. <laughs> right. I'm not sure I believe what you just said, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I think people well, are always really happy. When, but <laughs> right. you know, it's, I mean, every academic study would, would say it shows that the you know, ROIC is the superior way to do it, but you don't find it frequently in the market because people would rather manage it the other way. And, and um, I don't know, I don't know what this, how do you, how, well, how does and, one sell and, this? And to, I would all, to, but I would know, also challenge. I would challenge you. I would challenge you also that today so much success in the stock market hasn't been tied to these very fundamental logical investments. Sure, well, that, that's the whole point. Right? Of the whole right. overarching Lyft, discussion. Lyft, Lyft right. just announced earnings, and you know, Lyft at some insane valuation just lost one hundred and eighty-five point three million dollars. I'm pretty sure their ROIC. Isn't great. Might be negative. <laughs> Might be <laughs> negative, right? And they've been around for a while, and you know they're public, and it has a seventeen billion dollar market cap. Right. So, you know, I just think that's why Silicon Valley's just lost its mind because they don't do any of. There's ROIC. I'm not sure. Yeah, they they definitely don't talk about that in their in their investment committees. As, uh, as you guys, the great quote was by Samuel Johnson, who said, uh, "We are not here to sell a parcel of boilers and vats." But the potentiality of growing rich beyond the dreams of avarice. We're in one of those markets. <laughs> beyond the dreams of avarice. <laughs> All right. Well, I think with that, we should uh, we should call it a day. Yeah, I think or at least we'll been... at least we'll do a timeout and come back and do another one soon. This has been awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, I think this is our densest investing podcast. And also, as always, a true pleasure to catch up with you. And uh you're welcome to everyone who's listening for us inviting Mr. Hale and thank you, Mr. Hale, for yeah, joining no us and, and sharing your oh, brains John, with the rest of humanity. Please, it's a, I could spend uh, many, many hours with you guys. It's a, a pleasure. Thanks for having we'll me. We'll do it again. We'll, we'll do it again. Hey, Thanks how, a lot. How's your, uh, your um, so you got the COVID test feeling good this week, all, all that good stuff? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, good. We're off, are we uh, off recording? No, yeah, why, why are you still recording and you're talking to him about his COVID test? <laughs> you're going to have no, to no, cut the end of that shit off now. All good, all good, all good. I just all want to right. make sure everybody here is happy and healthy. All right, we'll, we'll see all everybody right. here uh, soon, all right? Excellent. All right, so I turn okay. it off. All right, see Thank you, ladies and Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Bidding on Zero podcast. These opinions are intended as entertainment. Any opinions expressed on this podcast by Bart Coons, John Pickmore, or anyone else are not necessarily Mr. Raymond James. There is no guarantee that these statements, opinions, or forecasts provided herein will prove to be correct. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making investment decisions is not constitute a recommendation. Our current financial advisor, Raymond James Associates Incorporated, member of New York Stock Exchange, member of SIPC.